Welcome to the Wellness and Wanderlust podcast. We're here to demystify wellness and help you add a little adventure to your life. Tune in for a new episode every week where we'll hear from incredible guests and talk about ways to be happier and healthier in our new normal. I'm your host, Valerie Moses. Let's get started. Hello, my friends. I am so glad that you're here with me at the Wellness Wanderlust podcast. I hope you're all having a wonderful start to 2023, and I'm thrilled that you've decided to share this part of your day with me here. Whether you are a longtime listener of the show or brand new, I want to welcome you to this community. Wellness and Wanderlust is all about helping you create your best life, one small habit change at a time. We have an amazing guest lined up for you today. This week's guest is Dr. Jordan Feingold, physician and well-being researcher who integrates positive psychology into medical education and practice. Dr. Feingold is also the co-author of the new book, Choose Growth, a workbook for transcending trauma, fear, and self-doubt. One of the first positive psychology books aimed directly at coping with and growing from pandemic life with Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, PhD. In our conversation, Dr. Feingold shares the science behind post-traumatic growth and how life-altering events can challenge us to view the world differently. We talk about how to stay grounded in difficult times, the power of boundary setting, ways to become more resilient, tips for improving our self-esteem and challenging our limiting beliefs, and why growth is truly a choice. This is such an important conversation, especially three years into a global pandemic, and I know that you're going to get a lot out of this one. So enough from me. Without further ado, let's hear from Dr. Jordan Feingold. Hi, Jordan. Thank you so much for joining us at Wellness and Wanderlust. Hi, Valerie. So delighted to be here. Well, I am delighted to have you on the show. It is such a pleasure to get to speak with you and learn a little more about your work. Uh, Before we really dive into today's conversation, I'd love for you to introduce yourself to our listeners and just tell us how you got into the wellness space. Sure. So... I am a physician now in my training. I'm a psychiatry resident, so two years into being a doctor and well on my way to becoming an independent practitioner in a couple years. And my wellness journey started before I came to undergrad. My mom actually, I was packing to go to college and I was going to the University of Pennsylvania and my mom was reading a magazine. She's an educator and she was, she like ran over to me and she's like, you have to go meet this guy, Marty Seligman. He's at Penn, he's a professor and he founded the field of positive psychology. And I was like, what is positive psychology? And I quickly learned that there is a whole field devoted to studying the science of well-being and human flourishing. And I kind of like shook my mom off and said, mom, I'm a freshman. You can't just like waltz into a professor's office and say, like, talk to me. And, you know, as moms usually are, she was right because our paths did cross when I uh, decided to um, join an acapella group in college. I loved to sing. It was like this incredible outlet for me and also just like my social circle at Penn. And we were hired by the Penn Masters of Applied Positive Psychology program my freshman year to actually sing for the students in the class. And from there, like my interest totally grew. And I started reading all of the books in positive psychology, Marty's books, Authentic Happiness and Learned Optimism and Flourish. And then I got into the broader literature. And from there, I really started to live and breathe some of the well-being practices, decided to get my own degree in positive psychology. And since 2015, 2016, I've been working to apply positive psychology in medicine and healthcare. So happy to talk more about all of those things, but that's really how it started. I think that's so inspiring. I love the field of positive psychology and just because I think so often when we think about psychology or people think about going to therapy, we think that, you know, it's all about just improving ourselves and... I think fixing the problems or the traumatic times. Yeah. And certainly that's important. And those moments have shaped us. But I think understanding that it's not so much about fixing ourselves, but I think creating the lives we want to live. And I love the way that positive psychology really teaches you that and teaches you to to have, you know, a well-lived life in a sense. So I'd love to know for you, you recently co-authored a book mm-hmm. about, you know, that's very much focused in positive psychology about choosing growth. And I'd love to know what inspired that and how positive psychology can impact us in times that may be challenging for us. 
Absolutely. So I think you hit the nail on the head that traditional psychology and, and everything we do in healthcare, with few exceptions, is really about getting rid of what's wrong with us, getting rid of the bad stuff, fighting the stuff that afflicts us, depression, anxiety. And during the last few years, and especially especially during COVID, there was so much anxiety, so much uncertainty about what the future would look like. And there's truly nothing more anxiety provoking than uncertainty. And this fear of the unknown was incredibly pervasive. And even folks who were previously really thriving and robust were struggling, myself included. I had never experienced mental illness before. And with the social isolation, I kind of had this experience where I was like, if I am struggling this much, much, how the heck is everybody else on the planet doing? And that was really the impetus to create something that could help people have a path forward. That's not just about, you know, getting rid of the uncertainty and anxiety, because that clearly was never going to happen. You know, time would tell what the future would bring, but how we could really harness our strengths and understand how the pandemic was really working to thwart some of our basic human needs that was challenging us. So I collaborated with one of my very dear friends and mentors over the years, Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman, who is host of the Psychology Podcast and a professor at Columbia now, and he was my professor at Penn, which is how we met. And we decided that the public would need some some help to process this time and really understand how we can harness our strengths embrace our dark side and some of the some of the negative things that were inevitably coming up and really integrate that into our experience and and move forward in a deliberate way. Well, I mean, there's such a need for that. And I can definitely relate on going through that time and realizing I'd always experienced maybe a little bit of anxiety, but all of a sudden the depression and it wasn't something that I'd really gone through previously in that way. Maybe, maybe after very traumatic, like I think we didn't give credit to the fact that it was a traumatic time, but it was one of those times where as, as an introvert, I didn't think that social interaction was as important to me as it really is Mm. and realized that, no, I mean, I need to be intentional about it and I can't be everywhere at once in you know, in a pre-pandemic world, but Mm -hmm. that at the same time, like I ended up having a doctor that told me it would be healthier for me because of some elevated numbers. She actually said it would be healthier for you to carefully spend some time with people close to you than to be alone right now and to be alone and not as any danger to myself, but just that it was really impacting my health. And I was amazed to see, and like, you know, as someone who was functioning fairly well in that time, how Mm -hmm. much it affected me and how much worse it was for so many people too. Um, But with a time like that, especially because we do have that fear of the unknown. And I think even now, even at a time where we're not on lockdowns, but we see the numbers start to rise and we don't know what's going to happen next, or we worry that there could be the monkeypox or whatever Mm -hmm. could be happening. What do we do to deal with that fear of the unknown and still thrive? Oh, (laughs) such a good question. I mean, that's a big question. It's a a really big question. Fear of the unknown is one of these existential fears that I think it plagues all of us, whether or not we are conscious of it. And I, I thank you for sharing just, you know, the importance of social connection, because I actually think that that is the prescription forward, whether or not we consider ourselves extroverts, introverts, ambiverts, those in-between folks, the power of social connection is probably the most important predictor of our well-being and life satisfaction. And that we understand from decades of research studying folks longitudinally and understanding relationship structure and relationship quality, that having other people in our lives and really focusing on other people, sometimes as a way to even get out of our own heads, can be a really powerful antidote to, you know, the rumination that can happen when we're fearing the unknown. And even just like the fear response that can be such a visceral experience in our bodies, you know, the social engagement state when we're with others, our bodies can feel more relaxed, we can feel synchronous with other bodies. And whether that's, you know, ideally in person, but also through phone calls and video chat and all of the media that really emerged and came to the forefront during 
COVID by necessity, um, I think surrounding ourselves with other people is an incredibly powerful antidote to some of that uncertainty because maybe we're all uncertain, but we're uncertain together. Yeah, I think that did in a lot of ways make us feel less alone and understand like and and I really did enjoy I know we were talking before we hit record about dogs barking in the background of of a podcast for example but having I think that window into other people's lives I think it made like even just for a very baseline work meeting it I think deepened that sense of connection that hey we are all going through it's a traumatic time but it's a traumatic time for all of us it's not easy for really anyone Totally. It's like the world is is so divided right now and there's so much division. And I actually think no matter how rich a person is, you know, we know we actually we know the pandemic affected different groups differently. So it's not that it's not that everyone's been affected to the same degree in all of the same ways. But like thinking about things that can unify us in a time when we are so divided, this really has been quite an equalizer. No one is immune to the isolation or the uncertainty. So I, I like to think about this as a collective, you know, long-term traumatic event, just as you said, that affected everyone, certainly differently. And everyone sort of, we use the metaphor of the sailboat in our in our book, you know, everyone's kind of in their own boat, but we're all in this water together. Absolutely. And I, I love that metaphor. And something that you talk about a little bit in the book with the with the sailboat is that anchor. Mm-hmm. And I'd love to understand a little bit more about what that means to anchor yourself and how that can help us through through times like like what we were just dealing with, with the pandemic or really any traumatic time in our lives? So that's such a great question. What does it mean to anchor yourself? So in the book, we talk about this extended metaphor of the sailboat. And what this alludes to is, have you heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Yes. So listeners have probably heard this in a pop psychology class or Psych 101, that there is this pyramid of human needs that starts with the base of safety and essentially you climb the mountain and the the triangle up to self-actualization. And my co-author Scott is Abraham Maslow's absolute biggest fan. And in his last book, Transcend, The New Science of Self-Actualization, he actually revealed that Maslow himself never actually built a pyramid to describe the theory of human needs. And that was just sort of a fabrication that some textbook company used to design the theory. But a sailboat is the metaphor that Scott used to replace the pyramid, which is very static and sort of implies there's just the bottom and then you climb your way to the top. Whereas a sailboat is dynamic. You have the base of this boat, which captures the human needs of safety, connection, and self-esteem. And then once your, your base is solid and you can sort of float in the water of life, then we can open our sail and really engage in the world and move forward. And the sail captures our needs of exploration, love, and purpose. And when we have an integrated sailboat, like all of those pieces are working synergistically in ourselves and the water around us, that's when we can experience transcendence. And that's really the property that emerges from having a well-integrated boat and having our needs met in an active way. And when we talk about that anchor, so like what is keeping us grounded in this crazy world we live in, (laughs) that is all about connecting with what are our needs? Where are we in relation to these dynamic needs in terms of where we want to be and where we are presently? And how do we understand what it actually feels like in our bodies? You mentioned before that during the pandemic, you like went to the doctor and some of your numbers didn't look right, like these physiologic markers in our bodies. There is such a powerful mind-body connection that we experience that is totally underappreciated in traditional healthcare models and in the current biomedical model. And 
I think that anchoring ourselves is really about just understanding how do our minds and bodies relate to one another? How do we experience stress and anxiety or states of wellness physically? And subsequently, how do our physical states really impact our mental states? Um, So anchoring ourselves is really about thinking about reintegrating the mind and the body, connecting with our needs, trying to understand who is in our lives and who's in our boat with us, and thinking about how we can sort of expand our comfort zones and face our fears in this world to start getting our needs met. I think that that's so fascinating. And I didn't realize that it wasn't necessarily that that pyramid, but it makes a lot of sense because yeah. I think like there's so much that changes and I think you can have certain needs met at certain times, but mm-hmm. not at all times necessarily. But I think it definitely shows that it's, it's not that static thing. Something that I know I have struggled with, I think a lot of us struggle with, I think we have a little bit of that doubt where it's hard to sometimes understand, especially because we have been taught that the mind and body are these two separate entities. Mm -hmm. But how do we connect with those needs? And how do we start to understand that a little bit better for ourselves? Yeah, it's, it's a shame, because especially in Western cultures, we really do think about these things as as different, you know, we have psychiatrists, and we have neurologists in, in medicine, both of who deal with the same organ, the brain, but neurologists deal with the real physical basis of things we can see and verify and understand. And psychiatrists, my line of work is all about what we can't prove and, you know, just clusters of symptoms that people experience without any real hard evidence of distress. And I think that it can be really invalidating for people when they're experiencing, you know, stomach pain and they go to the doctor and they say, well, nothing is wrong with you, but really something's wrong. It just may not be anything we can physically verify right now, but maybe there's a a disconnection or um, an aberrancy in the mind-gut connection. So I think one way that I love to teach students and medical students and college students I teach is to think about this fight or flight system that is just at the basis of like how we evolved and it's at the core of our nervous system. So when we are seeing a threat in our environment, be it when our ancestors would see the saber-toothed tiger, today maybe it's when we see a dirty dish in the sink that our roommate did not put away. Our bodies like sense that fear and sense a threat on the level of like milliseconds without our frontal lobe, our conscious thinking brains detecting it itself. So our bodies sense danger. And again, our bodies don't really care whether it's a real life-threatening danger or just a danger to our ego. And that's more of the distress we're seeing in this modern age where the world is relatively safe compared to the environments that humans evolved in. So we see the threat. Our bodies detect that there is a stressful situation. And we go into this fight or flight mode. So our brains communicate with our adrenal glands and send epinephrine and norepinephrine surging through our bodies. The blood flow in our bodies gets shunted away from, you know, non-essential functions like digestion and towards our heart and our lungs and the big muscles preparing our bodies to run away. So like these physical changes are happening inside of us very quickly. And part of what they do is they shut down that frontal part of our brain that helps us think and override that mechanism to tell ourselves, I don't need to be afraid right now. It's not a saber-toothed tiger. It's just someone disliked something I did on Facebook or whatever it is. And when you can understand what happens physiologically inside the body when we get into that fight-or-flight state, it makes sense why we might have butterflies in our stomach or feel like we need to run to the bathroom before we give a talk or before we sit down and take a stressful exam because our bodies are literally preparing us to run away from a situation, shutting down all of that blood flow to the gut. So essentially, those physiologic changes are happening to us all the time as we experience stressors. So even just paying attention to our bodies, how we feel, and understanding how maybe the power of a few deep breaths to engage our vagus nerve that runs down the body through our diaphragm can help calm the physiology and help us remember we're actually not in life threatening danger. Um, I think this can be very powerful to teach people. Oh, I think so too. I'm amazed at how much just that mind-body connection really – I mean, I've had times where I looked at my Fitbit at the end of the day 
And I know I didn't exercise that particular day, but I can look at the heart rate and think, wow, I had a really Mm. intense workout. But no, it was just the time that was a really challenging one and, you know, really physically feeling those things. But there was another time where I remember putting, I think I put like an ice pack on my chest and I thought, and it actually slowed me down and I felt a very different sensation than I might normally. And I think changing the physical ended up changing the mental emotional when I was ruminating. And Mm. to, I think, understand that is so empowering. Totally. And you know what you're describing, like your heart was racing, like there are so many physical manifestations of anxiety and stress. You know, our palms may get sweaty, our heart starts to beat, we recognize that our breathing rate is increasing. And sometimes just noticing that, that oh, like this isn't me having a heart attack or this isn't me going crazy or I'm not dying. This is just my body trying to keep me alive right now. And even showing a little bit of appreciation and saying, wow, like taking that step back and saying, isn't this amazing that my physiology is so attuned to what's going on in my mind? And then maybe by acting directly on the physiology, trying to slow down, take some breaths, even like riding out that, like my heart is racing. Sometimes I say to people, just ride out that state, like go for a run, do a little dance, wear yourself out a little bit. It can actually be a more direct way to counter some of the the negative thoughts that are actually creating those physical states in the first place. Yeah. I almost feel like it works that energy out in a mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're so right kind of reframing that and realizing, you know, yes, it can be difficult when we're ruminating, when we're having these physical sensations. But I think at the same time to kind of be telling ourselves and recognizing that, hey, this is my body doing the best it can and doing mm-hmm. what it thinks it needs to do to to keep me alive and to to survive whatever the situation is, even if it was an email. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, anxiety is with us in our species for a reason. It did, it does serve a, a vital function of helping us stay alive long enough to pass on our genes. And I think recognizing that it is a light, it can be a life-saving piece of our lives when it is not debilitating us can help us just have some appreciation and accept that it's a part of our lives and find that happy medium, like that sweet spot so that we are not so debilitated and don't necessarily see anxiety as this thing to be avoided at all costs. Definitely. And I I think about the pandemic as a really good example of that, that I work in community relations and PR, and I was very used to being at very large scale events around a lot of people. Mm. And um, I do have some autoimmune issues. And during the pandemic, especially was trying to be very cautious about going out and doing things. And I did have a lot of anxiety about going out. And while I think the anxiety got to be a little bit to the extreme where I had to start figuring out what risks are worth taking for me and what can I do that's, you know, maybe calculated a little bit and really evaluate, realizing that, hey, that anxiety in a sense that is keeping me from making decisions that maybe really short-sighted that could put, you know, could put my health in danger. And so recognizing and having some gratitude for that, that maybe taking it a little too far, but at the same time, unprecedented times, but recognizing again that, hey, this is something that's keeping me what I believe at the time to be physically safe and then kind of figuring out how we can, yeah, not be debilitated by that. In my case, I think slowly desensitizing myself through things Mm. and figuring out, you know, hey, is this something I feel comfortable with? And some of those things, yeah, I think I could go out and do X, Y, and Z. Do I think that sporting events on the college campus are a great thing for me to do at that point? No, but I also realized that I was always a little claustrophobic. And Mm -hmm. so kind of evaluating, was this worth it to me? Did it make my life better? Did it fulfill me in some way? Or did I feel unsafe the entire time and like it was a risk not worth taking? And I think that helped me move past some of that anxiety a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. Like really calibrating and testing the waters and getting ourselves into relatively safe situations where you can be somewhere and have an out if you really don't feel comfortable. But I think what you're saying is really testing the waters, testing your own feelings, trusting yourself. And that's how ultimately we calibrate the safety of our environments. 
Yeah. And I think that this was a time where, for better or for worse, I think we all learned a lot about ourselves mm-hmm. and it was more challenging for some than others. And not to not to discredit for celebrities, I was always laughing when I saw them quarantined with the big pools and yeah. all of the the fancy things, but it was still, it was an isolating time for, for so many and even, you know, for them as well. Of course, everybody has their challenges. And so you talk about a concept that I find really interesting and that I hadn't really heard of before, but this post-traumatic growth. And I'd love to know a little bit more about that and how it pertains to the pandemic and other challenges we might be facing. Sure. So post-traumatic growth is a concept that I believe was first discussed in the 1990s by two psychologists, Tedeschi and Calhoun, who started to study what happened to people who go through these life-changing, what they call seismic events, events that really shatter the assumptive worldview of a person, be it a natural disaster that absolutely devastates a community or death of a loved one. These traumatic events, and when I say trauma, I really talk about events that are traumatic in the eye of the beholder, not anything that I will say would be universally traumatic to every single person on the planet, but that people experience as life-changing and shattering in some way. And what they found is that in the wake of such events, and of course, these things aren't studied in like randomized controlled trials. We're not going to randomize people to go have devastating life events happen to them. So these are natural Mm -hmm. studies that we can talk to people who have experienced difficult things. And what we know is that in the wake of these events, people report lots of actually positive outcomes, such as a greater appreciation of life, a greater discovery of personal strengths, a, a deep deepening of personal relationships, creative growth, deeper sense of spirituality, greater sense of meaning and purpose in the world. And this is not to say that people are necessarily better off because tragic things happen to them. And I think that's really important to outline, that people wouldn't have asked for these things to happen. But the idea is that these things can happen. And it's not that we need tragic things to create positive growth. We can certainly grow from beautiful and wonderful things. And there's a complementary concept actually called post-ecstatic growth of people growing from phenomenal life experiences. But the idea is that traumatic events don't necessarily lead to us being debilitated from trauma. And I think the coolest thing about post-traumatic growth is that it actually highly correlates initially with symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder. It's sort of cousin. So PTSD is something that we've seen throughout the centuries manifest in different ways, especially around wartime when soldiers would come back and, you know, and it's been called shell shock and, you know, different syndromes with different wars. But it's the idea that people get flashbacks and mood symptoms like depression and anxiety, hardcore avoidance symptoms, and re-experiencing traumatic events. And initially, what happens is in post-traumatic growth, there's a high correlation with those things. But what we understand, like, helps transform things like post-traumatic stress disorder into post-traumatic growth is when we can deliberately transform some of those intrusive ruminations, like the ruminations and the thoughts that come to us when we don't want them to, when they like pop up in the middle of a lecture or pop up in the middle of the night. And we can actually more deliberately engage with them in the presence of social support. And that's one of the purported mechanisms by which growth can happen in the wake of adversity. So that's post-traumatic growth. And what Scott and I conceived of when we were writing our book, Choose Growth, is this idea that what we can foster among the broader population is post-pandemic growth, which is using this time of COVID to understand ourselves and deliberately transform some of what we experienced as the helplessness and the fear and the anxiety into more deliberate ways of living in the the aftermath and in this later stage of COVID as things become a little safer. I really love that concept. And I've had so many people on this show where when I ask them about how they got into the type of work that they do, so often it comes from a challenge that they Mm. experienced when they were younger that they wanted to be able to help somebody else with or from lessons that they've had to learn themselves. And I think there's the book, Why Bad Things Happen Mm -hmm. to Good People. I, I don't think that these things happen necessarily for a reason. And I would love for all of my bad things to never have happened in a lot of ways. But yeah, I think that there is 
isn't necessarily a reason they happened, but I think if we can find meaning in them or find lessons to learn from them to take away from them, that it does make us a lot stronger. And so I really love how people can find beauty and purpose after something so tragic or so difficult and to try to make the world better for other people. With the pandemic and with that post-pandemic growth, what are some things we can do to... um, I think A, become a little more resilient when something like this pops up and B, um, how we can start to reframe those thoughts. Oh, yeah. So definitely check out the book because that is what this yeah. is all about. Um, no, I, I I jest. But, you know, I think I think that different folks, you know, have different needs. And I think one of the first things to do in, in the spirit of really anchoring is understanding how am I doing in terms of my sense of connection to others? How am I doing in terms of my sense of general safety on a day-to-day basis? How am I doing in terms of how I'm feeling about myself lately and my sense of self-esteem? Do I feel like I'm sufficiently exploring the world around me and setting myself up for challenges? And do I have love in my life? Love broadly defined sort of as like a warm and fuzzy open orientation to the world? Or am I feeling more embittered and shut down? Do I feel like I'm living my purpose or ape not that there's one single purpose that any of us have has but do i feel like i'm contributing meaningfully to the world around me and these questions are all brief ways of getting at how are my fundamental human needs being met right now and for some people a place to start moving through uh, some of this like peri-pandemic, post-pandemic world is working on the things that are already really good. Like I feel really connected and focusing there, building the strengths for others who maybe like to challenge themselves a bit more. They're going to want to start working on things like where their needs are really unmet. Like maybe they have lots of social connection and having a lot of fun in their lives, but not feeling like a deeper sense of calling or living by a purpose or meaningful contribution. And they're going to want to start there. I think a really important point in all of this is that the pursuit of growth for each of us is a very unique journey and there's not a one size fits all prescription. So it's really about finding what resonates for the individual and starting there. And then thinking like, what's like a small, a small change I can make to close this gap a little bit? Like what's, what's one, one thing I could do to live more by a value that I have in order to get closer to my sense of meaning and contribution? Like how can I help someone tomorrow? Um, So I, I don't know that any of it is like, super rocket science, but really like taking a really genuine look at ourselves, being open to look at ourselves and wonder like, where are my needs right now? And like, what's a small change I might make to get a little bit closer to where I want to be? Yeah. I mean, I think sometimes this, sometimes the simplest answer is the right answer. Totally. <laughs> I definitely was, you know, especially with the pandemic, I something that I always enjoyed doing pre-pandemic was just going around and exploring just different events in my town and mm-hmm. like little hidden gems in the little neighborhoods, maybe an hour away, sometimes with friends, sometimes on my own. And then being so isolated for such a long time, I remember listening to a podcast one day and they said that a great way to practice that self-care was just to do something that made you feel more like yourself. Mm-hmm. And I got in the car, drove about an hour out of my way to another town. And I did mostly things outdoors, but just kind of explored and did like kind of a traditional day that I would have done pre-pandemic, maybe a little bit more distant. And I was on a high for like a week after that, just from, you know, just taking a few hours out to, to do something a little bit different. And I think that no one size fits all piece is so huge for us. But I think something else, you know, as you say, you're moving through it, you're, Mm -hmm. you're choosing to do it. It's not going to just happen for you, but having, I think some kind of movement and taking those steps, I think that makes such a difference for us. Totally. And I love that you did that for yourself and that you actually felt the benefits in real time. I think there's something so powerful about saying, like, I'm going to do this thing for me right now. And actually going and doing it, like just the self-efficacy. It's like you're working towards like that sense of accomplishment. Like I'm going to go do this thing. It's for me. I can not just check it off my list, but it always feels good to set out to do something and then go be able to do it and align that activity with the values that you hold. 
old and things that you said make you feel like you and to make you feel whole and complete, especially when so many of those things were so challenging to do during the pandemic. And then there's like the sense of gratitude for the ability to do them and to feel like yourself again. And I think in general, it's just so important to remember that time as we experience it only moves in this one direction. And I think the pandemic brought such a longing for life before and normalcy and like what we had before sort of like this assumptive worldview came uh, became so shattered. And the idea is that like we're not returning back. We're coming somewhere new and we can integrate all of these lessons and and contrast what we have available to us with what we didn't have available to us for so long. And like let that feel however it feels to us. And um, so just, and and when it comes to traumatic things, it's not about like moving backwards, like life, bef- I want to be who I was before the trauma. We may feel that way, but it's also so important to recognize that we can't change the past. Yeah. You just can't go back in time. I mean, maybe someday we'll have the the technology, but we can't, we can't go back in time to that. That's right. And I think, yeah, aligning with your values is just something, I mean, that was something that was so hard in that time that the group that I volunteer with, I couldn't go and volunteer because of social distancing. And there were things that you just couldn't do the same way. And then after all was said and done, and some things went back to quote unquote normal, some things are different. And recognizing, hey, these are the things that I really missed and I need to find a way to bring back into my life in whatever mm-hmm. way is, you know, allowed now. And then these are the things I really didn't miss. They mm-hmm. never really were a joyful thing for me or, I mean, this is a silly one. I don't think I ever need to go to a buffet again. <laughs> <laughs> But like certain things with friends and being able to go to certain types of events, now that now that we're back in an environment where we can do some of that, I can see what types of events I that really light me up, what types of activities and what I'm like, wow, this was draining before and now it's really draining. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's so much value in in pairing back. And in, you know, we live in a society that's so about consumption and just more, more, more. And I think one of the gifts that I've taken away from these years in COVID is like, actually, what can I shed? What can I let go of? And how satisfying that can feel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Saying no is such a powerful, it's a difficult thing, I think, especially probably for the women listening to the show. It can be really challenging and I'm finding myself back in some traps from prior to the pandemic where I'm starting to fill the calendar in the ways that I used to. Mm -hmm. And I recently did say no to an opportunity that I was genuinely interested in, but I knew I couldn't give the time and attention to. I knew it was going to deplete me and it's not necessarily a no forever, but it's a no, not for the next couple of years anyway. And after, you know, I was really putting off saying no to it too, because I was really trying to think, can I make this work? And when I finally did, I just felt a little bit lighter. Yeah, I I am totally resonating with that. I I find myself falling back into that trap, and we have a whole t- chapter in the book on setting boundaries and saying no, and how it's often the most self compassionate choice that we can make, and we can really be role models to others when we say, actually, you know, this really isn't going to be as much as I want to do this right now, and I'm so excited about the idea. I know it's not what is best for me right now, and how we can actually really role model for others like the importance of self-care and the importance of putting that oxygen mask on ourselves before we can help everyone around us. And it's actually, it's so important. And like you and probably so many of the listeners, I, I struggle as well with this. So it's, it's just such an important reminder. Absolutely. Do you have any tips for setting those back? I mean, I'm, there's a whole chapter. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but any just basic practices that we can kind of, or thought patterns that we should take into account when when we are trying to set those boundaries for ourselves. Yeah. There's this quote in the book that I heard from one of my colleagues and mentors, Gail Gazelle, who's a coach for physicians and a physician herself. And she once told me, when you're saying yes to something, you're always saying no to something else. 
So it's so important before we knee jerk and default to just immediately saying yes when someone asks us to help or to do this or have this incredible opportunity to think about what may I be giving up to say yes to this thing? And am I willing to to give that up or carve out a little extra space from something that may or may not be valuable to me that I'm already doing? And, you know, you said you were, you were putting off saying no. I think it's really important not to not to just say yes right away to ask like can I get back to you in a couple of days so I can think about it even if you are like you know 90% sure it's something you want to do I find that like if you ask me and I have to say yes or no in like 15 seconds like I'm gonna say yes because I am a yes person and I want to I want to give my all to so many things. But if if you just say, can I get back to you in a few days? Let me think about it. It actually gives you the mental clarity and space to really weigh whether this is something that we can give of ourselves. I mean, it's so true because I even think about the people like in organizations I've served in where there's somebody volunteering who really, really wants to help and they ultimately aren't maybe pulling their weight on whatever project because they're afraid because I've certainly been this person before. And I think we've all had this person on a board we've served on or in a group that we're in where now that they're either depleting themselves so much to be able to help or they're just not able to help at that point. And Mm -hmm. it's only, you know, you're, you're taking that on too and internalizing that. And so to really be able to give your all to the things you say yes to and to, yeah, like you can always be like endorse the other things and be a supporter in some way without actually like having to put the time in, I think kind of recognizing that, that it doesn't have to be like you can't you can't be everything to everyone mm-hmm. and it's hard and it's it's the like my eternal struggle is wanting to be all of these things for so many people like love is my greatest character strength and sometimes the most loving thing to do is just being honest about our limitations and helping someone just understand like I want to do this so badly I want to be there and right now I am just like I need some time just to like breathe at the end of the day and like let's check in in a couple of weeks, you know, and and see how it goes. Like a no now is not a no forever, like you said. And I think we're scared to close doors. I think you're right, especially women. It's like, when will this opportunity come again? And there's this element of fear of like, what am I giving up and saying no and at the same time, like by saying yes, we are saying no to something else. Yeah. And sometimes we're saying no. I think when you're thinking about the sailboat, I've had times where I was saying yes to so many different things that those basic needs aren't being Mm -hmm. met. I had one week um, not too long ago where every group I'm in seemed to have their big deadline or event happen the same couple of days. And by the end of the week, talking to people, I thought I sounded drunk. The lack of sleep I had, just the way I was rambling and the way I was feeling, the way that I was eating. I mean, like my my emotions were just, I couldn't regulate in the way that I normally would. I wasn't reacting to things in the same way. I wasn't performing as well as I wanted to. And it was, you know, just that depletion of the basic needs that, yep. that we have to be meeting too. Because I think we all want to get to that self-actualization and be doing the fulfilling work, but we can't feel fulfilled if we're not getting some nutrition into our diets and mm-hmm. going on walks or getting some movement in the day or, you know, taking that time. And we can't do that if if every hour of the day is so booked up helping everybody else too. A hundred percent. There are so few things that I feel like a good night's sleep can't fix either. And it's like, it's so often like the first thing to go by the wayside when things are busy and stressful are these basic, the, the most basic fundamental things that we know are at the crux of what helps us function and just be vital on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. I'm amazed at how many times, like I do have some, I have the autoimmune issues and I always have a weird symptom here and there, a weird collection of symptoms. And a lot of times I'm quick to blame those. And sometimes I think maybe if I got a little bit more sleep, I'd actually, maybe maybe this energy issue isn't the Hashimoto's. Mm. Maybe it's running yourself ragged, you know, or there, there could be so many other things, or at least to be supporting, you know, hey, there are going to be some things 
in our DNA that we're just going to have those health challenges, but at least to be giving ourselves the best chance to, to exactly. fight them. And to, so I've even found sometimes where it's like, yes, I needed to get whatever work done, but it wasn't going to get done to the right ability anyway. And it might be better for me to just take a 10 minute walk instead. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. It's like we can't choose our genes. We can't choose the diseases that we manifest or the illnesses that afflict us, but we can choose how to manage the energy that we do have. We can choose how to create our day to optimize our feelings of wellness. So we have to meet ourselves where we are and recognize like what is not in my control and what are the things that actually are. Yeah. And I mean, I think that was something so challenging in a pandemic that routines were, I think, flipped on their side a little bit and everything in a lot of ways felt like it was out of control, but some things weren't. And I've been kind of taking back control a little bit of a morning routine and just figuring out, I I think I'm re, because so often what works for us at one point in our lives doesn't necessarily work. And, And I think as women too, because of hormonal changes and things like that, it's just different times of the month, I even feel like certain foods are better on my system than other times, but kind of experimenting a little bit more with creating a little bit of structure in my morning that, hey, even if I can't control X, Y, and Z, I can do my tongue scraping Mm -hmm. or I can drink my greens. I can go, I can usually go for my walk. It's, Mm -hmm. um, we did have an active hurricane season, but I can move around in some way. I have, right. you know, there are things I can be doing. And I'd love to know, especially as as I'm starting to kind of develop this a little bit more for myself and kind of get back into it, do you have anything in your morning routine or in your evening routine for winding down that you just recommend for building the resilience or just even meeting those basic needs that that you found helpful? Totally. So, you know, like I said, this is a very person-specific journey. I love to like work out first thing in the morning. That is how I function. Before work, I'm a big Peloton gal. So I do like spinning or weightlifting. I like have really enjoyed lifting heavier weights and, and really getting into that recently. And then I feel like I can go into my day, get to work, and I already have like felt alive and checked that box and have just like gotten in enough activity to fuel the rest of my day. And, you know, when you wake up at like six, between 6.15, 6.45 and get your workout in, I'm tired, but work a full day. I am tired. So I am very disciplined with bedtime. So I really like to be in bed by 10, 1030 every night just to like get my minimum seven hours of sleep. And what that looks like is winding down by like 930-ish, doing the whole teeth brushing thing, washing my face, that whole routine. But I, I'm a big audio book before bed listener. It's like my favorite thing. Po- podcasts too, but there's just something about audiobooks that, I don't know, they're not, I guess, not always as um, dynamic and interesting and sexy as uh, like, I'll I'll listen to the same, you know, chapter if I fall asleep like 10 times. Um, But I just find them to be really soothing. I've listened when the pandemic started, my husband and I started listening to the whole Harry Potter series. And we we made it through all of all of the seven books on audiobook. They're fantastic. And that's like my favorite way to fall asleep. You know, I've never listened to, and I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. I have never listened to the series, so I might have oh, to do that. Now. I highly recommend it. Highly recommend. Yes. I've gotten into, I finally downloaded Libby, and I'm shocked that I didn't do this during the pandemic, like at, at its height. And I've been on a little bit of an audiobook kick myself. And it's so, it's so true that like whatever I listen to before bed, I pretty much have to listen to again when I wake up because (laughs) I don't know what happened unless I was like brushing my teeth or something. But I, I've been getting into the habit of listening to some of the psychological thrillers a little late. So I need to stop doing that. Um, (laughs) Then you have all kinds of nightmares. (laughs) Yeah. And then I'm like, why was someone chasing me? And everybody was like, and and I also listen to them on walks sometimes on my own. I'm like, this is maybe not the best, but it's been, I think it's kind of sparked my creativity and brought that back. Cause that's another thing that I hadn't really thought of. It wasn't necessarily a pre pandemic activity for me, but I've just always loved to read. And I think college and then graduate school and 
work and suddenly everything you're reading a lot of things but none of it is for just the true joy of reading it's even if you enjoy what you're reading it's like it's for work or it's for whatever and to just do it because you like doing it I Mm -hmm. mean that's that's something I've been so excited to take back in this chapter of my life too so I think that's so cool totally Totally. Doing it for its own sake and just doing things for their own sake rather than for some higher order end. I think that is also what helps us feel like us. Like what do we love doing that's just for us and for no utilitarian reason? Yeah, that was something too. Like I was so excited getting back into just finding the random thing going on in my town. And like, did I get any professional benefit out of going to alpaca yoga? No, but did I love being around animals and just getting outside and doing something just because I thought it would be really fun? I mean, there's so there. I think that that's sometimes the best wellness thing for Mm -hmm. us is to do what we like, totally, or to try it, totally, yeah, absolutely, and just to think less too. Just like do something that like puts you in an experience and out of our own heads, out of our own fear, out of the things that take us away from experiencing the joy of life. Yeah. Now I do have just another question for you with the, you know, a a topic that you really get into in the book, I think is that self-doubt and Mm -hmm. self-esteem. And I think self-esteem is something pandemic or not, it's something that a lot of us struggle with. And we have notifications going off on our phone every five seconds for something going on on Instagram, someone living a quote unquote better life than we are, whatever it might be. And there's that comparison. Talk to me a little bit about self-esteem and how some of the techniques that you recommend for just challenging some of those self-limiting beliefs. Totally. So, you know, there, there are two, fa- this is, this is, I think, so relevant in this day and age, like you said, with social media, where we are constantly comparing ourselves to illusions of other people, not even like what other people are really like, but just what they're like at their best. And then end up internalizing this narrative of like, well, if everyone's doing so well, like what is wrong with me? Why am I suffering? And then you actually look at the your own social media account and you're like, well, I actually look like I'm pretty doing pretty well. And that's just like so fundamental human behavior, this idea of comparing ourselves to people who we perceive as doing better. So self-esteem has two components to it. And that whole like Instagram phenomenon really challenges our like idea of mastery, I think. So there's self-worth and mastery are these two ingredients for a healthy self-esteem. Like, am I worthy? Like, are my needs as important as other people's needs? Like, do I matter just because I'm a human being on this planet? And then this mastery component, like how how am I actually doing sort of objectively in the world? Am I meeting my goals? Like, do I feel like I'm putting meaningful work out there and I'm accomplishing things? And I think that the self-worth piece is a lot more fundamental. It really is developed sort of like in infancy when caregivers met or did not meet our needs and sent us the message as like pre-verbal beings that we deserved attention. Of course, I do think that hope is not lost for people who did not have those basic needs met as children, but can be developed over the course of the lifespan. And some people who had their needs perfectly met still feel like an inherent sense of worthlessness that could be associated with depression and, and things like that. And then the mastery piece is really about you know, existing in the world and sort of getting some external validation, which we're all probably too reliant on these external sources. So there are very few people who actually have like no self-esteem. When we give out, you know, self-esteem questionnaires, like there's very few people who say like, I have no value whatsoever. But what we know is that people with quote unquote low self-esteem just tend to have a very uncertain self-esteem that it can really waver in the face of external circumstances, failing a test, bombing a presentation losing a job. It's like those outward measures of quote unquote, like success or failure can drastically change the way a person actually views and sees themselves. So what we want to build is a more stable and secure self-esteem. So how do we do that? What I say is actually maybe we shouldn't be focusing so much on self-esteem at all, which is the way we, we rate and sort of estimate our own social value, but rather focus on 
self-compassion and giving ourselves love that we deserve and that it can be a lot easier to give other people to really meet ourselves with kindness and recognize that we are part of a larger common humanity, that the experiences that we are having and the suffering that we are going through is not ours alone, that likely other people are experiencing that, and to be able to create some distance between ourselves and some of the things that we go through. And I, I absolutely love the work of Kristen Neff and her colleagues, Chris Germer and others who have really brought the idea of self-compassion and some of like the Buddhist principles into mainstream psychology. Because I actually think if we focus less on just constantly proving ourselves and being the quote unquote best version of ourselves, and focus more on treating ourselves with love and kindness and treating ourselves like we'd treat a best friend, you know, no matter how we are objectively do quote unquote objectively doing on the outside, we can be a little bit more stable in our feelings toward ourselves. Yeah, I think that how we're doing on the outside, that is like such a rocky thing, Mm because I've certainly had times where I felt that I was struggling, especially maybe health issues. I had a lot going on and people saw, you know, a very one dimensional thing. I didn't even think I was posting that much. And I remember people reaching out and saying, oh, my gosh you look like you've lost weight, which is its own separate Mm -hmm. issue that people comment on because you never know why they have. You look like you've lost weight. You look like you're doing so great. And I'm thinking, actually, I have no voice right now and I feel kind of crappy and Mm -hmm. I'm exhausted and trying to figure out X, Y, and Z, but it looked a certain way to others. And so I have to remind myself that. I I remember having a difficult relationship in my early 20s and we would post very happy pictures online and thinking, you know, hey, when you see whatever everybody is going through, that they're living their best lives, whatever it may be, they may actually not be. And it may be something that they're putting forward to the world and that there there is a lot more that than meets the eye. And I think, you know, those two pieces, that self-worth and that mastery, I feel like a lot of times that mastery, while it's, you know, while it is that external and we don't have the same control over what others are seeing and what have you, I think that that's an easier one for us to grasp because we think like, well, if I don't think I'm competent in this, I can always take a class or I can, you know, you can kind of quantify a little more, but that self-worth is so fundamental to who we are. Like it can be such a, I think a difficult thing to grapple with. And we are so inclined a lot of the time to talk to ourselves in ways that we would never like no one would ever want to be our friend if we talk to them like that. Totally. Totally. We are more like if you really take a second and think like, who is my biggest critic? I think like eight out of 10 of us are our own biggest critic. Like some of us might genuinely have, you know, like real trolls out there. (laughs) But but it's it's we're often so much crueler to ourselves than we would ever be to someone that we cared about. Yeah. I mean, there are just so many things where I think like, this is not how I would treat anybody else in my life. Or if I were talking to a child, I certainly would not put this blame or whatever it is and kind of having to think through that a little bit more. And I think that self-compassion piece is something that we don't give enough credit to, but I think it also helps us when we do make maybe a mistake or things don't go the way that we want it to go rather than letting it like completely rattle us. It kind of instead, you know, you're doing your best, you're doing whatever it is. And this is a setback. It's not the end of the world and we keep going and you're still just as valuable. And it's an important part of growth. It's like these fumbles that we have when we like may bomb a presentation or just sound totally ineloquent. And then you're thinking to yourself like, why? Like, why did I say that? Like, oh, I really messed up. Like, that's not the stuff that defines us. That's the stuff that we can learn how to integrate and iterate on and get better. And it's like, we need those things. And if we let them just totally devalue ourselves, we're we're not going to try again. We're not going to keep going. And the goal is not to eliminate our fumbles. It's to learn and grow and, and move on from them. Yeah. So many times the thing that didn't work out for me that seemed like the end of the world at the time, it was such a blessing that it didn't work out. Yep. Or it was something that at the time I thought, oh, I'm really missing out on this. And it either I learned something from not getting that opportunity and I was able to to grow in other ways, or there were just 
new experiences I never would have known about had this one thing worked out for me. And a lot of times I've, I've met people in adulthood who aren't necessarily as self-aware. They don't respond well to challenges. And I think it's because they haven't taken that time. And like, I think that there's a key word with, you know, the title of your book to choose that growth because we're all going to face challenges. But mm-hmm. if we're not looking at them with a little bit of that, you know, sense of where do I go from here rather than just, oh, this thing happened to me and, you know, and I, I'm a victim. Yeah. Yeah. But instead like, Hey, what what can I learn from the, the, you know, Mm -hmm. bad things happen to everybody, unfortunately. So how do we, how do we move forward? What can we do? Exactly. And, you know, just in keeping with the sailboat metaphor in the water, I love this John Kabat-Zinn quote, the father of mindfulness-based stress reduction. He says, you can't stop the waves, but you can learn to surf. And, you know, we say you can't, we don't want to stop the waves of life. The waves of life are what make life interesting and rich. But how do we, like, figure out how to bolster our boat so that we can sail through these waves adroitly and with our compass with us and, you know, with our crew on board and really move in the direction that we want to go in spite of all the conditions around us. Yeah. And I think those are the things that really have built up. I think that self-esteem for me is how have I handled some of the challenges that have come up in my life and did I meet them with the willingness to learn from them and to, yeah, with the attitude that, that I wanted to have or did I let it totally destroy? And yeah, I think really learning, Mm -hmm. learning how to leverage what you have and absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think this is so, so needed. This is, you know, it's been almost three years. It'll We'll be coming up on three years since the shutdowns had taken place and just challenging time, the unprecedented time for every single person. I think we had so many of those once in a lifetime life events in a very short period of time. And so having practices like this and that post-traumatic growth, I think all of that is so, so powerful for just helping us through and helping us find some meaning in these in these challenging times. So um, I first want to thank you for, for everything that you're doing and for having this amazing resource out there. I would love to switch gears a little bit and just ask you a few rapid fire questions. Sure. As well. Absolutely. Wonderful. So this one, it may be tough as a physician, but what's your top wellness tip? Uh, my top wellness tip, sleep. Sleep. We need yeah. sleep. Cannot function without it. Yeah. Yeah. I've personally seen the differences in my own life for sure. On a completely different note, what is your favorite travel destination? Oh, this is so tough because I love travel and I'm so excited for some upcoming travel. But I did just get back from Kauai and Kauai, Hawaii. And I have to say, it's like my new dream place. I need to live there at some point. So I will say Kauai. That is amazing. It's so high on my list. It's phenomenal. It's the garden island of Hawaii and it is just so natural and beautiful and I could spend an hour talking about it, but I won't. (laughs) I need to, I need to book a trip. Uh, It's been so gloomy here today. I'm ready for like tropical getaway. Yes. (laughs) Now, if you were an animal, what animal would you be and why? So tough. I was thinking about this one. I I think I've landed on a dolphin because they are just so fun loving and wonderful and friendly and they travel in packs and I'm totally a social person and just experiencing like the freedom of water, but the ability to breathe air and just like straddling these worlds makes me somewhat of a dolphin. I love that. I, I think they're such great animals too. And they're, they're so intelligent and yeah. there's just so many cool things about them, but they do always seem like they're, they just seem like they're having a good time too. Totally. They smile. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's heartwarming. Totally. If you could master a completely new skill, what would that be? So I really need to learn how to speak Spanish. I speak un poquito, mm-hmm. pero necesito practicar. So it's not completely new, but I really need mm-hmm. to like approach it like it is a new journey for me. My in my mother-in-law is from Mexico City and my husband speaks Spanish. It's actually his first language. And we really want our future children to speak Spanish. And uh, I just think it would be like a really helpful thing for me in my life. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I will join you on the Duolingo for yes. sure. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome though. Um, and my final question for you, this could be personal, professional, really any area of life, but what would you say is next on your bucket list? Yeah. So, you know, as a a doctor in training, I feel like I I have to say really investing in becoming like I want to be a master clinician in psychiatry. And next up in my training is I want to pursue a fellowship in child and adolescent psychiatry. And I, I don't have much experience with the child population. And I feel like it's going to be learning like a whole new way of being and engaging with small humans. <laughs> Um, who just see the world so differently than adults do. So I think becoming an excellent child and adolescent psychiatrist and just learning how to how to help kids in, in a new way. I think that's awesome because that's something too, like times like we've been experiencing that's had, and I know that the research is going to say a lot more on this in a few years, just what an effect it had, not only on the adults who had, who had started to maybe develop some coping skills, but these kids that are developing at this time in life and Mm -hmm. how college professors I would talk to would say, hey, my seniors have never been in an in-person class before Yeah, and how it affects the way that they communicate and the way that they handle certain stresses and things like that. And I think it has to be so rewarding to be able to help, you know, I, I think of college students still as kids too, but mm-hmm. to be able to, yeah. to help, to help this next generation uh, to know how to respond when these challenges come up and to, you know, again, like little humans. I mean, that's what they are. We we don't, we, we sometimes just think of them as almost babies, but to really help them so that they can do amazing things in the world and not experience all of these traumatic pandemic once in a lifetime, many once in a lifetime experiences mm-hmm. and be afraid of the world. Because I think that that's tempting for a lot. Yep. Yep. To really reclaim what it means to be a child and have that play and engage in the world and test boundaries and, you know, in relatively safe ways, but that we don't have to just, you know, overprotect and not let our kids fail and experience these things on their own. And in the era of COVID, it's just been so scary, I think, for, for everyone that the tendency is just to say, like, protect, 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 don't let children just keep them safe. And, and what are we losing when we over overprotect our kids or don't let them have these important experiences of childhood. So yeah, I'm I'm excited to learn. That's amazing. Well, I'm really inspired just again by everything that you're doing. I think, you know, I've I've gotten to go through a little bit of your book. I'm excited to really work through some of those exercises and just I find it all again to be just so helpful, so practical, especially yeah. in this world. But really any challenge that comes up whether it's pandemic or anything else we may be facing. Before I let you go, tell us where listeners can find the book and other ways that they can find you and connect with you. Absolutely. So the book is called Choose Growth, a workbook for transcending trauma, fear, and self-doubt. It is available everywhere. Pretty much books are sold. Um, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and in some in-person bookstores as well. You could definitely find it online. And uh, you can find me at Jordan Feingold. I'm on social media, although I'm not the biggest social media gal, Jordan H. Feingold on Facebook, Jordan Feingold on Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn. And it's Jordan with a Y. And yeah, don't hesitate to reach out. And I love to teach. I'll be in practice in a few years. So definitely find me. That's awesome. I'll make sure to link all of that in the show notes, especially so they get the spelling right. I sometimes get weird spellings for my own name. So I definitely will make sure that that's linked there too. Awesome. Yeah, I'm so excited to follow more of your journey and just want to thank you so much for coming on the show and for sharing these insights with us. Again, I think so powerful and so needed in this world. Thank you so much, Valerie. Likewise, I love following what you are doing as well. So thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. I loved this conversation, and I'm such a fan of Dr. Feingold's individualized approach. The book has so many practical exercises that can help you develop that resilience and grow from the challenges that pop up in life. And I'm so excited to take a deeper dive into these exercises now in the new year. 
If you've been struggling to find meaning lately or you even just need a little help getting grounded, I think you're going to find a lot of helpful takeaways in this book. So I have linked all of Dr. Feingold's information in the show notes and I encourage you to connect with her and order the book to learn more. As always, thank you so much for tuning in and sharing this part of your day with me. I am so delighted that you're here. If you have a topic you'd like us to explore in the future, you can reach out to me on Instagram at Wellness and Wanderlust blog or send me an email at Valerie, V-A-L-E-R-I-E, at wellnessandwanderlust.net. I would love for you to also share your feedback with me. I want to know what you think of the show. Leave that rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are tuning in from. It just takes a few minutes. It truly means the world to me, and I would love to know what you have to say. So with that being said, I hope you all have a fantastic day, and I'm looking forward to seeing you next time.